You've hit play on the screen, companion. Scientifically formulated to provide the best film and TV recommendations. Fifties atomic movies. They're all black and white. One of them is a foreign movie. I think this is going to get us all the lessons. In order of release, we're going to do Five from 1951, Godzilla from 1954, and On the Beach from 1959. I'm actually going to start with On the Beach. It's about a group of survivors after a nuclear annihilation has destroyed the Northern Hemisphere, and really all that's left are people living in Melbourne, Australia. And they're awaiting the inevitable, deadly fallout that's being carried by the winds. This fallout that's inevitably going to reach them and kill them all. From when the movie starts, they say it's roughly going to take five months. So, a very chipper film. The music was so upbeat. Just like, look at all this fun nightclub. Everyone will be dead in five months. (laughs) What the hell? It does play with the notion of... If you know there's impending doom, do you just give up now, or do you try to live normally for as long as you can? Like, how do you deal with it? Before we really get into that, though, this was a first-time watch for you, John. I'm wondering, what were you thinking when the credits rolled? I was a little sad. I noticed each one of these has some depression to it. I love Gregory Peck. I mean, you can't go wrong with Gregory Peck. His eyebrows do so much heavy lifting. They are the hardest-working eyebrows. Maybe ever. I know Robert De Niro's eyebrows do some heavy lifting too. I'd like to see those two face off. It's incredible all the different situations they could employ those eyebrows. <laughs> not just inquisitive, not just concerned. He finishes looking in a periscope at one point because he's a U.S. sub captain in this movie. And he just finished looking through a periscope and then close up on his face. And then those eyebrows arch. (laughs) (laughs) What does it mean, John? Was that the scene when the one sailor just decided to go back to San Francisco? Yeah. Those eyebrows, they were doing double duty because he's just like, I'm happy for this guy. He found his way. I'm really sad because San Francisco sucks. (laughs) What else were you thinking? This is what, Fred Astaire's first dramatic role after being a music man for how long? That was pretty interesting to watch. Is it just me, or does he have such a classiness about his performance in this that for a second there, I actually thought he might have been, his character in in real life, that he might have been British. But he's not. He's not. Real life, he's not. That was a weird thing of just, I feel like the uh, production crew had never heard an Australian man before, because it just sounded like everyone else was British and not Australian. It's one of the reasons I wasn't into Anthony Perkins. I think he tries the Aussie accent a little bit at the very beginning, but he totally stops by the end. Pure American, I'm going back to Ohio soon. Well, what they don't usually talk about in textbooks is how the British founded Australia as a penal colony, but there was actually like a little group of Americans that founded their own district in Melbourne. And, and <laughs> bunch of expats. It's the old red, white, and blue district. So this being about a post-nuclear war scenario, what stood out about its depiction? 
I think the lack of destruction, there was an overall somber tone to everything, but there was still a life goes on part to it. Everyone was just living their lives. No one was as sad as I thought they would be, but I guess that could be like survivor's guilt. There was that really good scene where Gregory Peck was talking about his family and what they were going to do. Like, it was going to happen, not it was a lost dream. Who are you doing all the, the, the witch macaws? Oh, no. I didn't mean to ask you that. Peter said not to. You don't have to answer. I can't decide if I'm more objectionable, drunk or sober. It's perfectly all right. We were at sea. We got orders to go to the West Pacific. And when we put our nose up north of Iwo Jima, the air was filled with radioactive dust. Came on down the coast of Australia and ended up here. You look married. Oh, I am. My wife's name is Sharon. I'm a couple of kids. Richard, eight. Helen, five. Dick is the real sailor of the family. He is going to go to Annapolis. Oh, that's to be expected. Probably change his mind. The way characters deal with the war and their impending doom, his moments where he's still talking about his family like they're alive, they're made extra cringy by the fact that Ava Gardner playing his love interest, he's in scenes with her waxing on about his family, and at one point he even mistakes her for his dead wife, and it's just, ugh, gross. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, uh, the beats there, yeah. No pun intended. (laughs) Considering I spent a portion of my life in San Francisco and you currently live there, is one of the things this movie is trying to say, because it does have a big message in it, is one of the things it's saying is that it would take a nuclear detonation over San Francisco for it to be clean. (laughs) It's the cleanest I've ever seen that town. (laughs) I'll bet when this movie was made, it was a good clean city. There's definitely some San Francisco is sin undertones of, like, we gotta burn it clean. (laughs) (laughs) I don't recall too many movies or shows dealing with the immediate period after a world-ending event. Like, I think of Terminator, that's years after Death and Destruction, the initial wave. Heck, even Rick Grimes. He sleeps through the zombie outbreak in The Walking Dead. Yeah. And he awakens only after society is completely broken down. What is it about these movies and shows? It's like they don't want to show you as it's happening. They're just like, oh, we need to snap our fingers and move on and talk about what happened after. So it's nice to see this movie actually say, no, no, this just happened within the last month. Here's what's happening today. It's easier as a writer to do the struggle to survive when everything's gone to shit. (laughs) Can you think of any other movies where it's so soon after something really bad happens that ends the world? I know the first Mad Max movie, Society was in the process of collapsing. Oh, yeah. That's not what the series is known for. No. (laughs) That's the only immediate thing I can think of. I don't know. It depends on what. Do dragons count? Brain of Fire. (laughs) I actually like that movie. 
I do too. Matthew McConaughey was hilarious in that. I always think of Christian Bale as being a very serious actor. And I like to think that whenever he gets too much of a stick up his butt, some PA will walk by and say, yeah, but you're in Reign of Fire, dude. He'll <laughs> <laughs> be like, oh, crap. Whatever his Welsh accent is as he runs away. This being 1959 when the movie came out, it's definitely a film of the Cold War. Do you think that there were any big details that really felt like it was commenting on the climate of the time? Absolutely. That scene where Fred Astaire was talking about who killed who and why, I think he mentioned that it was probably just a blip on a radar that scared someone and everyone started launching the weapons. And then there was the metaphor of the only way to protect ourselves is with weapons we can't use. Absolutely a statement on the nuclear war. I don't think there's anything propagandist about it. Throughout the whole movie, whenever they're talking about how it started, nobody's really trying to pin the blame on anybody else. And it's almost like it doesn't matter who started it. It matters that we're all going to die. It only matters that it got ended. Besides its anti-war, anti-stockpiling of WMD's message, in a good, benign way, I felt there was something patriotic about the way the U.S. sailors stick together during the movie. The song Waltzing Matilda gets used a lot, maybe too much, and that song is deeply rooted in Australian culture. It feels like it's enjoying some patriotism without ever being chauvinistic about it. I'll agree with that. When they're on the submarine cruise with Fred Astaire, and they're like, you gotta take care of him, he's not used to being clocked in here with the rest of us boys. Basically being all that's left of the U.S. Navy, how quickly the Australians take in the Americans. And in another movie, or a remake of this one, you might expect there to be more criticism of different nationalities making fun of each other. I can't think of them doing any of that in this movie, do they? No, they definitely don't. I think Ava Gardner makes a joke about an American breakfast, and that's it. Doesn't she say that Americans are oblivious or something about not being all that smart? (laughs) But she's oddly saying it to entice Gregory Peck on their first date. (laughs) She says something akin to, Americans are stupid, but I like that. (laughs) I like being taken for granted. And what do you think of Ava Gardner in this movie? Have you seen many movies with her? I've seen a few. I can't recall off the top of my head which ones they are, but I know her. I've seen her. I liked her. I thought she did a really good job. All the characters had that background sadness to them. She owns the movie in a lot of ways. Her character, it's like the romance in the 50s. They have a lot of movies where romance seems to be at the heart of it. And her romance with Peck, those are like the best scenes in the movie. And unlike some starlets of the black and white era, (coughs) Marilyn Monroe, her acting seems to justify her name recognition. A lot of actresses in that era would have demands in their contracts for certain cinematographers because they lit them well. (laughs) I don't know if she had that. She had a full presence, physically and spiritually. There's one scene where Peck is just flat out spanking her (laughs) with an oar. But everyone involved was happy about the situation. Fred Astaire even comments that he's looking at them through a pair of binoculars and he feels like he's watching a French movie. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, who says 50s movies don't have humor? That they don't get risque? <laughs> <laughs> With all the multiple subplots, this huge cast of characters, which one did you like the most? Fred Astaire, I liked how his ended. I liked his plot with the car, wanting to die in that race, and being slightly disappointed when he didn't. But he's still happy because he won the race with that Ferrari. Yeah. I thought that worked really well. That resonated so much for me because his character is one of the few remaining scientists left, and people are making fun of him because he wants to race a car. But I like that he had a pet project and he wanted to live that dream before the end. Some of the characters don't deal with the situation as well as him, and I'd like to think I could just sit down and finish the last three or four books I've been meaning to get to. (laughs) (laughs) If the uh, apocalypse happened and you had months to live, what do you think you'd focus on as a pet project? I'd probably... I don't know, go do the stand-up career or whatever, I guess. Ooh, I'm pretty sure that would work really well in San Francisco. All the little dive bars and comedy clubs, you could definitely find a spot. In a dying world, people are going to need that. But kind of like how after Jerry Seinfeld hit it big and everybody was imitating him, I get the feeling everybody going to those clubs to perform, everybody's going to be joking about nuclear bombs. It's like, come on, don't you have anything else to talk about? Get new material. Well, there's no new Earth. (laughs) For everyone dying, the overall tone of the movie was really upbeat. I don't know if I agree with that. Well, the ending has upbeat music. However, if you really look at what happened to everybody and what's about to happen to everybody, I think that music was used ironically. Okay. I'll go with that, but it was like the upbeat music through the whole movie, just trumpets at the beginning, and I think it was a voiceover or something that was like, and then the nuclear fallout will kill everyone in five months. Do, 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 do. Do you think that was a studio note where they said, this movie is so dour, <laughs> the only way we're going to let you make it is if you put chipper music? I could see that, but from what I read, I heard this was a protest movie to the bombing of Japan anyway. Did it feel like the right amount of messaging, or do you think it ever got heavy-handed? I don't think it did get heavy-handed because of the upbeatness that I just complained about. (laughs) Going back to Anthony Perkins, he, I think, is my biggest criticism. Get rid of the subplot involving him and his family. The movie's already over two hours long. Let's cut that back a little bit. Perkins' acting was tepid. We mentioned how he didn't have an Australian accent. The scene where he talks to Fred Astaire on the submarine, and he mentions his wife not appreciating talking about taking suicide pills with him, he's breaking down in front of Fred Astaire, and his acting is just so wooden. It feels like the cheapest theater acting, and he gives a line delivery when he's talking about broaching the topic with his wife. How do you do it? How do you tell your wife to kill yourself and her baby? (laughs) And there are a lot of great moments with other actors. However, that scene in particular that I think should have been the crux of his character just totally fell flat. Shave the movie down 10 or 15 minutes, however long Perkins is on screen or the focus of a scene. (laughs) Were you aware of the movie at all before we did this? 
No, I was not, which surprised me because um, I have a, a white father. What does that mean? Hey, Gregory Peck. That's just all white fathers in America love Gregory Peck, and all white fathers in America love war movies, be it war or anti-war. So it does surprise me that I've never seen it before. Tell him you liked it, and he'll love you even more. <laughs> all right. Do you agree with our picks? Have a suggestion or scathing critique? Email the show via the screen companion at gmail.com. Tell us if we gave you a good recommendation and let us know who your favorite guests are. Like us and subscribe on YouTube, Podbean, Amazon Music, Spotify, and more. Thank you around the world for listening. Moving on to Godzilla. The movie starts with a monster being awakened by nuclear testing and going on a rampage through Japan, destroying Tokyo in the process. It's about the people dealing with this. Do you think the historical context of when this movie was made, does it feel particularly political to you? And like, what statements do you think it's making? Oh my goodness, Frank. So, Godzilla is America. That is a fact. So, after the occupation of Japan, after World War II, the United States put in some film rules. Several of those rules were you weren't allowed to mention nuclear weapons in regards to bombing Japan. You weren't allowed to make America the bad guys in anything. Godzilla was used to subvert all of those. Because Japan's not being attacked by a nuclear weapon. It's not being attacked by America. It's being attacked by a big radioactive lizard. What evidence in the movie itself would you say points to this fact? He is awakened by the nuclear testing. The Nikes he was wearing? Gigantic Godzilla Nikes. (laughs) The big Nikes when he played Charles Barkley. (laughs) The burning of Tokyo was, I believe... And the newsreel was all directly influenced by when Hiroshima and Nagasaki were destroyed and was reported on by that. Because I feel like you're more of an expert on Japanese stuff and definitely the movie compared to me. Do you feel it's making anti-American statements or just commentary on what happened to them in World War II? I feel there is some definite anti-war statements. I know, and one of the later films, Godzilla was represented as the ghost of all the people that the Japanese killed during their imperialism. They definitely weren't innocent. It's a horrible thing that happened with the dropping of the bomb. It's unbelievably horrible, but they weren't, like, doing nothing and they got hit by it. They were also committing atrocities and war crimes across Asia at the time, too. And so I think there was a criticism to them about that. For how straightforward this movie is, there was one beat in particular that I thought was very complex and interesting. One of the scenes with, I'll just call him Pirate Scientist because he has the eye patch. (laughs) Shirazawa, yeah. When they want him to use his oxygen-destroying death weapon against Godzilla, He's conflicted about it. He's worried about it being loosed upon the world and all the nations wanting it. I couldn't help but feel like that was reflecting maybe some of the murkiness during the development of the atom bomb and how those scientists must have felt. 
And I don't think the movie condemns those scientists because what does pirate scientist ultimately do? His back's up against the wall. He sees all this death and destruction. He does ultimately use the weapon, doesn't he? The weapon looks exactly like the inside of, I think it was Fat Man, the second bomb dropped. That's what the core of the nuclear weapon looks like. What foundation would you say Godzilla laid for subsequent monster rampage movies? I wish he'd laid the well-thought-out metaphor movie, but he didn't. He laid a solid destruction action movie foundation. Since he appears in only a few big set pieces, you could recut this movie and just attribute it to a giant earthquake. I think that's intentional, because he's not exactly a monster. He's supposed to be a force of nature. In this particular case, he's America dropping the bomb. He's the sleeping giant that was awakened. The movie was heavily inspired by Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, the Ray Harryhausen movie, which he didn't know that they openly admitted that, and he was angry about it. But they couldn't afford the stop motion that that movie used and that Harryhausen pioneered. So they came up with a suit that wasn't meant to hold a human, and I guess the actor kept passing out inside. What do you think of the Godzilla suit in this movie? I think it works. Less is more, definitely. The scales are designed after radiation burns that survivors of the bombs got. Shut up. Yes. This is a depressing I spy. (laughs) It is. (laughs) Yeah. Besides that Matthew Broderick American Godzilla movie, I have not seen any other Godzilla flick. Really? Yeah, I barely even knew what he looked like in this original. And when I finally saw him, he's just too cute. There's like cat in his face. (laughs) (laughs) But I like that it didn't throw me off too badly because they do a lot of shots where it's close up on buildings being toppled and. You see just a piece of Godzilla in the background. That's the best way to utilize that particular suit. Mm -hmm. What were your favorite scenes or performances? Well, obviously my favorite performance is Godzilla. The guy in the suit? The guy in the suit. Gojira, if you will. Gojira! Gojira! There's an amusing scene to me where he tears down a clock tower. The bell rings, and he roars at it, and the bell rings again, and he re-roars at it, and it's just like this funny um, <laughs> exchange of words where he just gets angry and rips it down, which is counterpoint by a scene right before that, which is super depressing, about a lady clenching her children and telling them how they're about to see their father soon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they show the building from the outside collapse in on itself, and they never mention that family again. It's like, they're dead. That whole family's dead. Yeah, stuff like that really helps take some of the cuteness away from Godzilla. (laughs) And that's the point, right? My favorite moment was the tumult on the island early in the movie with those great miniature shots. And this movie has a ton of great miniature shots. When the island is being wrecked and you have all those weather effects and... Sure, I know they're miniature buildings, but it looked really good. It was effective. On that same island, when they're just getting gossip about Godzilla, there's a moment with an old guy. They're talking about trouble getting fish, and he says, oh, this is Godzilla's doing. People are laughing at him, dismissing him talking about Godzilla. And he says something like, I'll feed you cows to Godzilla. (laughs) 
That was a great source of humor for me, and I wish that old guy had showed up later in the movie. That archetype would definitely show up in later movies, or he'd come in in the end and be like, See, I told you. Is the movie better or worse if you know this franchise heading into it? I think I found it better, knowing the franchise going in. I love them to death. One of the movies is entirely just made up in a kid's head. Half the plots are just aliens taking control and sending monsters down to destroy the planet. Like a single monster and Godzilla has to beat him up or something. Because these monster movies, usually they get a lot of mileage out of the convention of the mystery of what is causing all this destruction. And then you get the big reveal. Mm Mm-hmm. Which in this, I clocked in at about 20 minutes in. They don't wait too long for it, so they give you the goods pretty soon. But when you go into it, knowing that it is ultimately going to be a giant reptile, I was thinking about the loss of the fear of the unknown. And I think by the end of it, I decided it's not too big of a deal to not get that initial reveal totally fresh. If they did the movie slightly differently and waited a bit longer and drawn out the mystery a bit more, then I think it would have been better not to know the franchise. Since it is 20 minutes in that you see Godzilla's big, cute head, I guess it didn't matter. It's a lot sooner than the 2014 version, where I don't think he shows up till an hour in. Did you like that one? I did like it, but it was frustrating because where's my Godzilla? Considering how much reverence you seem to have for the Godzilla franchise, what criticisms do you have for the first movie in the series? Watching the destruction scenes where they cut between live action and miniature, I didn't think worked really well because they were crashing cars. They were crashing fire trucks and stuff. They'd show the fire truck going down and then all of a sudden it was a miniature going that crashed and looked awful. Didn't they even have a few shots using doll people? They definitely had a few shots using doll people. The underwater shots were kind of hokey, too. I was watching it with my wife, and she's like, well, the two divers just went underwater to get Godzilla, but he's clearly not underwater. I was like, he's supposed to be underwater. I think the main problem I had with the movie was that all the characters, Godzilla included, they feel like cutouts. None of them are very developed. And the flick is super simple. It's giant reptile attacks Tokyo. Giant reptile gets killed. The end. Without somebody like you to look deeper into it and tell me about all the references in the filmmaking, I don't think I could have as much fun with it without that. Mm. Well, you're welcome. No, John. Thank you <laughs> for being one of the best guests on the Screen Companion. Bravissimo. Uh, Before we leave Godzilla, do you have any final thoughts for it? These are more just, like, fun facts, I guess. The opening movie was inspired by the Lucky Dragon incident, where a Japanese fishing boat gets contaminated by American nuclear testing, and the crew dies. One of the silly bits of dialogue in this movie, I don't think it's specifically a Japanese translation to English thing. When Pirate Scientist, he's lamenting having this super weapon at his disposal, And he says, I really wanted to find a way for my oxygen destroyer to benefit humanity. It's called an oxygen destroyer. (laughs) It's, yeah, that's true. The Oppenheimer is like, I just made a bomb. I hope it can help humans. It's a bomb, dude. Wait, you're saying it's going to kill people? I thought it was going to save lives. 
We're not dropping this on anybody. Twice! <laughs> Continue. There's a remake that was done in the aughts or teens called Shin Godzilla, and I suggest you watch that, especially if you haven't seen any other Godzilla movie. And that one is about the Fukushima reactor disaster when the earthquake and tidal wave hit it. Well, let us do a general discussion before we go into our final film. John, could you give us a few facts about the nuclear fallout following the end of World War II and how it affected Japan? First of all, the United States government lied about that. The media was reporting on 70, 000, upwards of 70,000 to 160,000 people dead from just the fallout alone within a few months. And the United States government lied and they said, there's no problem. Those people died from the initial blast. It was just a trip breaker. Everybody's A-OK. Yeah, but there was, within the first few months, between 90 to 160,000 people died in Hiroshima and another 60 to 80,000 people died in Nagasaki just from the fallout. And yet you would have thought that Japan would have been the ones to create the fallout series of games, and yet they weren't. That was the hardest part about doing the research, was every time I type in Japanese Fallout, I would just get gameplay videos of people playing Fallout, which is a whole nother, like, maybe the government is still trying to cover this up. With all the Asian stuff you've watched, being a fan of anime as you are, with your outsider perspective, of course, how does Japanese culture relate to nuclear weapons now? Do you think it's in a lot of their media still, or just occasionally? I remember reading this discussion online, like someone made an offbeat comment of, why does nuclear energy create superheroes in America, but monsters in Japan? And it literally all goes back to the bombings. The bombs release gamma radiation, we get the Hulk, they get Godzilla, we get a hero that saves the day, and they get their city destroyed. And the amount of body horror that's in Japanese anime is disturbing. Yes, it is. Akira, number one, that starts with an explosion, then there's a bunch of body horror, and then it ends with an explosion. It's capped by two explosions that destroy cities. For my part, let me give you and the audience just some factoids about nuclear tension in the 50s. First off, the Suez Crisis. I thought it was more of a regional issue. However, it turns out that the Russians at one point threatened to have nuclear reprisals during that conflict, which surprised me that you would talk about nukes over a canal, but they did. Next, during that decade, the United Kingdom became the third nation to join the Nuclear Weapons Club. The Doomsday Clock put out by the organization Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists since 1945, was set to two minutes till midnight in 1953, midnight being when a nuclear destruction would happen. For some comparison, in 2021, the clock was only set to 100 seconds until midnight, so we've gotten 20 seconds closer. Oh, jeez. And then the Kishtim disaster occurred in 1957 when nuclear waste from a Russian plutonium processing plant exploded. Only Chernobyl and Fukushima rate higher in terms of radioactivity. Following along with what you mentioned about governments not owning up to what they did, the Soviets denied the incident all the way up to 1989. 
Basically, they're like, all right, we did it. Now we're going to collapse. <laughs> Considering how big that country is and how they have just so much vacant land, it's only scratching the surface of what terrible things have probably happened over there that we don't know about. Ah, uh, yeah. Moving on to our final movie of the episode, Five, from 1951. Supposedly, if Wikipedia is correct, the first movie to actually talk about nuclear fallout. So this one, it's about a nuclear calamity that destroys all civilization. And months later, we've got five lonely survivors that band together. As a blind watch, wherein neither of us had seen this prior to this episode, what were your initial thoughts? It was another depressing one. Congratulations, Frank. At the end, I'm going to be honest, I felt like it might have been a communist propaganda video. Ooh, really? Please expound on that. The dude who comes down from Mount Everest, he is talking about all the wonders of capitalism, of we just need to go to the city, and we just need to get so many canned wonderful things, and this modern age is amazing. And the only two people who really strive are the two people who hunkered down and did the fieldwork. Interesting. Yeah, I could see an argument made for that. Was that climber, the character's name is Eric, was he supposed to be European? I don't know. I couldn't tell if the character spoke a little funny because of an accent or just because he was pretentious. Yeah, he's definitely pretentious. They did deal with racism from him. Did you get a little bit of Night of the Living Dead from this and how there's the one black survivor? No, I didn't, but now you mention it, that's almost exactly what it was. I'm not going to take away any of the plaudits for Night of the Living Dead. With the way they talk about Dwayne Jones and how it was so revolutionary to have a black actor play such a main part in the story, it's kind of funny that this movie predates that by over a decade and yet nobody seems to talk about it independent movie, right? This was made for like $85,000, $87,000. But when you adjust that in today's money, that's more like 800000 to 900000 Yeah, you still kind of need a studio for that kind of backing. It was very minimalistic, and they didn't need too much anyway. Did this movie strike you as maybe just a slightly bloated Twilight Zone episode? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it did. It was a definite, like, oh, nuclear weapons are bad, but these people are working the farm. It's going to work out. It was right on the cusp of being a really good story. They had the characters. The setting was all right. It lacked an engine to move things along. I think the closest we got was the climber, because he presented some immediate conflict and danger. Did you feel that? ramp up when you realize that Eric didn't like the black dude? I figured it had to happen eventually. It felt like a weird elephant in the room. Oh, come on, the only survivors, none of them are racist. <laughs> One of them's gonna be a turd. What themes, besides the communism, <laughs> do you think is prevalent the most throughout the film? I think there's a definite theme of having to face reality the reality of the situation. Like I said, with the climber Eric, everything was laid out in front of them and how they could survive, and he still wanted to go 
check on the unsure thing. At the beginning, the female character got hysterical multiple times, and they had to slap her back to reality. Because she didn't want to face reality either, and then every time she did, she got hysterical, and he's like, you gotta figure it out. Shake her and slap her. Because it's the 50s. Even after a nuclear disaster, at least we can feel safe knowing that we can still shake and slap women. (laughs) The theme I saw as being most prevalent was this idea of not being able to let go of the past. Since there are only five characters in this, let me run down the list for you and tell you how they all relate to this theme. You got the woman, Roseanne. She can't let go of her husband, who died during the calamity. And it puts her and her baby in jeopardy because she wants to go find out if he's still alive and go to the city versus staying in the safety of this remote summer home that they're all shacking up in. The climber clinging to his obsession with pre-apocalyptic trappings of prestige, comfort, and materialism. The banker, the guy that's only on screen for like 10 minutes. I wish he was Anthony Perkins. (laughs) (laughs) He's in a daze the whole time, reminiscing constantly about his occupation, as if he's going to head back anytime and resume business at the bank. They definitely brought up like, well, this vacation's nice, but a man's nothing without his work. And then you have Charles, the black dude, who was also working at the bank. Do they mention what his job there was? No. Back then, is it possible that he would have been a teller? Am I putting racial stereotypes on this, or are we supposed to read between the lines and say he was probably the janitor? The reality is, someone in the bank's going to be racist enough to make sure he doesn't advance. That is just a hard fact of the situation. (laughs) Maybe he was a teller. I hope he was a teller. And I really like Charles, too. He seemed like one of the more level-headed characters. He's a good guy. Didn't hurt anybody. No, he didn't. But he got hurt. Mm Mm-hmm. But his deal, he can't seem to let go of the societal hierarchy. First with his boss, who he seems to still maintain deference to. And then... When they have that kerfuffle with the racist climber, afterward, he's even willing to peacefully leave the little settlement to keep from stirring a fuss. And I couldn't quite figure out what his motivation was for that. And then I figured, well, if you've grown up your whole life in this system, even after the apocalypse, you're probably still thinking that way and you don't want to cause a ruckus. It made me angry. This is what, pre-Martin Luther King? He needed Martin Luther King there to be like, no, you can stand up to that piece of crap. And then out of all these characters, Michael is the only one who tosses aside the old world the fastest. He survives the easiest out of the group because he doesn't care about going to the city. That's the old world. He wants to build a farm, look ahead. He's probably the most solid character besides Charles, who also helps till the field. Charles is great. It's a lot of monologues. It's like a, I want to say a Tennessee Williams play, but I don't know if I'm sophisticated enough to (laughs) make that joke. It feels like a staple of smaller budget movies. Monologuing. We'll just point the camera. You talk for a while. That's less editing later. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I really liked the Eric character. 
for being a villain who had enough subtlety to not be a complete caricature while also being performative enough to an extent that was engaging, like we mentioned, his weird accent, and how without him, the movie would have been completely bereft of energy and conflict. The last half hour or so of the movie really picked up, and all because of that character showing up. I want to know what's happened out there, too. But Mike's right. We don't know what would happen there. We know we're all right here. Wouldn't God's name ask you your opinion? But I'm talking to her. And I'm telling you to shut up. I had enough of this interference. Where have I interfered with you? Your very presence is distasteful to me. But I must eat with you, sleep under the same roof with you. Now it's out. Now it's out. As evil as he was, though, And yeah, I'm not really going to try to mitigate racism. However, I did like the fact that he wasn't out to kill Charles. They only came to blows incidentally. It was still an accident. (laughs) So he's not 100% evil, just like 90% evil. Ah, that's different. Credit where credit's due. Difference between Hitler and Mussolini. Yeah. What were some of your criticisms for this movie? Went on and on (laughs) all the monologues. I'm going to leave it at that because there's other ones and I don't think I want to spoil the ending. I think it relies too much on the setup to see the drama through. Like that's going to hold the audience in place. Once you know that it's post-apocalypse, that's going to start your interest in what's going on. But to hold it, You gotta show more than just some perfectly white bones. Clean bleached bones. Which is a metaphor for the movie itself, where the actual narrative is bare bones. (laughs) The scenes where they do go into the city, or show some of the destruction, did those moments work for you? No, because when she goes to see her dead husband and loses it, That's where she was when it all happened and she was safe inside the X-Room. She should have seen him on his way out, too. I know, that's what I was thinking. (laughs) (laughs) She just miss him and be like, well, that's not my husband. My husband's not perfectly clean bones. Well, she was completely out of it at the start of the movie, and it's hard to gauge exactly when things turn to crap and when we start with the characters, but it seemed like she barely knew her name at the beginning, so... Maybe she just walked out of that hospital forgetting she even had a husband. Uh, maybe, I guess. How long did it take Eric to get from the Himalayas to the beach? I know, (laughs) yeah. Like, how long did it take Michael to get from New York City to Malibu? There's some things that I don't think are attributable to a small budget. One of them being the script. Having written a few scripts myself, it really doesn't cost much to write a good story. To make it, sure, but to just write it, to do the blueprints for it, doesn't take cash. And I was unsettled by how every character in this movie needs to totally tell you what they're about as far as how they survived the apocalypse. We were in a bank vault, and now old man's crazy. (laughs) They introduce Eric, and then within a scene or two, he's telling you his whole life story. That's all he's been thinking about, going across the ocean from... 
did he say he ended up in Hawaii or? I believe he did. Yeah. Yeah, and then made his way across the ocean to the beaches of lovely Malibu, and just thinking the whole time in that boat, be like, I gotta tell people I was on Mount Everest. No one's gonna believe me. That's an achievement. Whether or not that character is supposed to be an American. I'm going to say, based on his backstory, he's at least a resident of the United States. Because if you're in the Himalayas when crap goes down, the United States is a pretty far place when you could just easily travel south, maybe down to Vietnam, maybe go up to Russia. He was on a continent already. (laughs) Yeah, he could have gone to Russia, Europe, without having to get on a boat and somehow survive. Was he just really good at fishing? And let's be honest... Something they touch on in On the Beach that I think is applicable to Eric's situation in this movie. If nuclear war is going to go down, there are certain places that probably won't get hit, if at all. The Himalayas and other places, Nepal, Mongolia, probably the safest place Eric could have stayed in. But, you know, I don't want to pick apart the movie too badly. It was still an interesting watch. He had that speech about, what, immunity and how they were superior. Which uh, goes back to the racism. It turns out he wasn't. I love that detail, how that came back into play. (laughs) But it was nice that they acknowledged radiation. I thought this was going to be one of those movies that are playing up the fact that audiences back then probably didn't know too much about nuclear weapons. Because when the movie started, I was thinking, how did all these people survive radiation? And so when characters start to get affected by it later... It brought a bit more realism to things. Even if you survive the initial, you're going to get cancer in like 10 years, and that's it. Considering that we're both fans of the Twilight Zone show, was there part of you that just hoped Burgess Meredith would have showed up with a bunch of books? (laughs) (laughs) Just shut up, I'm trying to read. (laughs) When the banker and Charles said that they were in a bank vault, I'm like, oh my god, that's the perfect time to bring Burgess Meredith in. He could have stole the banker's glasses. (laughs) Any final thoughts about the film? The final image was literally people roking in a field, and then they embraced like hard work was the most fulfilling thing they've ever done. (laughs) Oh, might be worth a second watch. Mm, No. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on to the final segment. TLDL, too long, didn't listen. I'm going to ask you a few questions, John, and I'm looking for nice, short, sweet responses. Which I rarely give you, and I apologize. Which movie has the best performances overall? Ah, man. I'm going to go with On the Beach. Which movie has the best chance of appealing to modern audiences? Godzilla. Is Godzilla a better disaster movie? or monster movie? It's a disaster movie. Which film engenders the most food for thought on the topic of nukes? I would say it's a tie between Godzilla and On the Beach. Which story had the most satisfying ending? Godzilla. If you don't want overt messaging, which one proselytizes the least? Oh, Godzilla. (laughs) (laughs) Any final, final thoughts to wrap things up? Godzilla. Oh. <laughs> <laughs>